Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Bruce R. Marks, M&A lender and helping buyers and search funders get to the closing table. Man, thank you, Bruce, for being here today. I want to appreciate you uh, sticking with me. We had a little bit of technical difficulty starting out, but I think we're going to make this work. Yeah, Ron, it's great, great, great to be here. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Well, I always, always, always seem to start like at the origin story. I want people to kind of get to know who you are. So the joking, uh, the ongoing joke is I always say, well, you were born. Now you, you ended up on a, a show about buying and selling businesses. Could you fill in the gap in between? Yeah, that would that'd be great. So, yeah, I started my lending career a long time ago. I started out originally in commercial lending. And while I was in commercial lending, um, I did all kinds of uh, the processes, real estate lending, I did underwriting, I did closing, you know, you go through a, a formal credit training program and became a commercial lender. And then I got an opportunity to, to get into SBA lending. And it was interesting because when I first got into SBA lending, this goes way back into the early 80s, you know, SBA was, you know, stood for small bad assets so to speak right i mean people people did not want to do sba lending it was a process we had three part um parchment paper almost run i mean it was way back then the application process was you know putting it on a typewriter you know you'd send things into the sba it got kicked back it was just a, a really different process than it than it is today um but but through that whole experience and, and I also became a business owner for 13 years. So I've been on that side of the table. But um, about eight years ago, I shifted focus. I was working at an institution and a searcher who had graduated Harvard that called me up and said, I'm buying a business and I'm looking for a search funnel. And I, I really did not know what that was to be truthful with you. Um, I had been doing, you know, SBA and, and m and lower middle market transactions, but I really was never familiar with the concept of, you know, search fund lending or, you know, acquisition by helping people who put in a small equity check go out, get different investors, and then, you know, along with the solid ticket piece and, and, and buy a business. So, you know, really for me, it, it really started to blow up about eight years ago when this gentleman came to me and said, you know, this is the model. This is how it works. You're really working with young guys that are coming out of either Harvard or Wharton or Stanford or Kellogg or within a lot of the major schools. And a lot of schools now have gone into this ETA, Entrepreneurial Sector Acquisition. And so the model kind of has blown up. Um, there's a tremendous demand for it. As you know, there's baby boomers our age and they're going to be exited, right? And so there's a lot of those folks in the marketplace that are, are looking to, you know, get the fruits of their labor, get a liquidity event, and sell the business. And I tell my searchers or buyers, when you buy a business, you're going to exit one way or another, 
right? You know, whether you want to or you're not, you're going to exit. So, you know, there's a great opportunity out there for these folks making this transition. And then for what I do in, in the lending space and helping those searchers you know, obtain financing, you know, that's security or the liquidity event that the sellers want, and then obviously allowing the buyers to get a loan to buy the business and then fulfill their dreams of ownership. So, so let's kind of go through the process, right? So, uh, you know, a search funder, whether they're just graduating or they're, you know, just an individual that are out there looking to buy a business. And during the process, you know, there's just a, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, uh, that goes on in the beginning, trying to figure out, you know, who you are and what you want to, uh, you know, what business type of business you want to run. At what point do they need to start talking to the lending advisors and people like yourself? You know, I always tell my clients, you're the client, you're driving the ship. If you want to come to me pre-LOI, you want to come to me post-LOI, that's clearly up to you, right? So I think I have a lot of value to bring in. You know, I have I own my own business for 13 years. I've been a commercial lender. I've been a senior lender at a bank. I'm a certified M&A advisor. I, I, I have a lot of experience. And so what I tell searchers or, or buyers is that if you want to engage with me at the very beginning, if you want to get a SIM from a broker and you just want to assess whether this is the right fit for you, I'm more than happy to sit down with them and talk about all the things that matter, right? Is this the right business for you? Do you have the skill set? What does the seller do that you're going to be required to do? And, you know, I'd like to share a couple of stories with you because every everybody likes stories. So Absolutely. A, uh, a story several years ago where a young gentleman called me up. He was a Harvard MBA graduate. He um, lived in Texas and he wanted to move to Colorado because his wife's family lived in Colorado and they were thinking about starting a family. Like a lot of people, that's what motivates a lot of young couples is you know where their family is at to be truthful and they focus their search on it. Anyway, he, he found this business and it was essentially two ice cream stores, right? So in different locations in Colorado, but destination points. And the businesses were throwing off about $600,000 in cash flow combined. And he said to me, okay, you know, the business is selling for 2.2, you know, I'm going to put in, you know, 225,000, the seller's going to hold 225. Most size deals typically working capital is not involved in that deal cost. So it's going to be about a million, eight or a million, nine million. And I started to talk with him and I said to him, you know, what makes you really want to own this business? You're an executive, you're Harvard MBA, and now you're looking at buying two ice cream stores. And I shared the story because I said to him, reality will set in. You're buying the business, but you're actually buying the business that you have to go in, turn the key, and operate, right? You're going to, and I said, and this is going to happen. There's going to be a Friday night, and the young teenage child or young teenage person that's behind the counter is going to call in sick for whatever reason that might be, and you're not going to be able to get help to cover it for whatever reason, and now you're going to go have to put on the apron and stand behind the counter and start scooping ice cream 
That's what running a small business like that entails. And I said to him, if that's the vision that you had going to Harvard and graduating and putting yourself through that program to scoop ice cream, I'm all for it. I'll absolutely do your transaction. But I want you to think about it. And we hung up. It was a Friday night. I'll never forget this. Saturday morning, he calls me up and he says, Bruce, he says, it didn't take me long to think about what you had to say. And what you had to say was real. And thank you for slapping me and giving me a real sense and dose of reality. Because I don't think I looked at it that way. I think I ought to set my sights on a different business. And I said to him, I think that's a great idea. And I'm not saying that it's a bad business to run. It was just not a fit for him. Right? So it's getting to the skill sets of the people. If, if you're an IT guy and that's what you've done in your career, and you come to me and you say, listen, I have found two pizzerias that I think are great and I want to run them, that's going to be a really tough sell, right? Um, because you don't have any skill set. You don't even, everybody likes to eat. Everybody likes to go to a restaurant, but that doesn't mean you know how to operate a restaurant, right? So, you know, I, I joke about that and I laugh about it. But in reality, that's how granular I get with a lot of my clients because the reality is, is that you are going to own, operate, run, and also control the people that you work with. You're going to have to pay back the bank. You're going to have to pay back the seller. You're going to have to pay the landlord. You've got to pay your vendors. There's a lot of going on and there's a lot dependent on that business. And I want to make sure when we find the right one, and I always talk about that, and it's, it's a common saying that it is, in fact, the right one. I actually had a guest on here at the show, and he's talking about one of the transactions he tried to talk the guy out of, and he bought a, kind of the executive type, used to go into board meetings, wear a three-piece suit to work every day, buys a moving company, and then tries to have moved their, their staff meetings to like a boardroom setting, and everybody else showing up. You know, these are ex-cons mostly, right? <laughs> You know, nonviolent offenders because they're going into people's houses. But he had a lot. He had a, a large percentage of really roughneck type of guys working for him, and they just kind of ate him alive because he didn't know how to handle them. You know, outside of a boardroom. Um, so the culture matters. So the uh, Can you a story with that because I think it's pretty. It's it's a pretty interesting but true scenario. So I recently closed a transaction um, for just a, a great gentleman a Wharton MBA, but an older, mm -hmm. he wasn't, you know, in his 30s or 40s, he was, he was older than that. And he had a great work experience. And he bought a business here in Florida. And he was in LOI, the deal was moving well, we were, we approved the deal, the deal wasn't closing. And he called me up and he said, Bruce, I don't live far from you. Um, I'm, I'm panicking about a situation. I'd, I'd like to come down and take you to lunch. So I said, great, great idea. Why don't we do that? So we go to lunch and we sit down and we're having our conversation. And he turns to me and he says, I want to present a scenario to you, but I'd like you to put on your old consulting hat. I know you had a business as a cons corporate consultant for 13 years. I'd really love you to put on your corporate consulting hat. I said, okay, what's the situation? He said, when you look at me, I'm an African-American male. I've got a great skill set. But the business that I'm buying, to your point, was in the services business. And the people that 
were the employees of this business did not look like him. This is what he said. He said, i.e., they do not have the same skin color. He said, and I'm really concerned about coming in and buying this business and them seeing me and culture matters, to your point. You just said it. He said, I, I'm really fearful. What do I do? And I said, I know exactly what you're going to do. And I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, and it's going to work out there. I said, here's what you're going to do. When the seller and you are a week before closing, the seller's going to call his folks in, and he's going to have his regular staff meeting with a few stuff. And he's going to, on a screen, pop up your resume, not your picture. He's going to pop up your resume, and it's going to say, this is who I am. I'm a Harvard, M- Harvard MBA graduate. I've owned a business before. I've owned this business before. This is my experience. Not only just that, but the second slide is going to be, what's my vision for the company? Where do I see you in this world? Right? What do I, what do I expect? What am I looking for? How are we going to grow this business together? And they're going to get a flavor of you, who you are, what you are, and what you bring to the table without ever seeing a picture of you. Because then this way, in their mind, they're already going to know, wow, we're fortunate that this is the guy that bought the business and going to take us to the next level. And after he does that and the transaction closes, then you can meet them face-to-face, one-on-one. Don't do it in a group setting. Do it one-on-one so that they then can ask any questions. They can meet you. You can tell them. You can ask them what their role is, how they can help improve the company, where do they want to go in the company. And he called me back and he said to me after it was done, it was the best advice and it worked out fantastic. And I think in in what we do as lenders, it's not just about, and I say this all the time, yes, we utilize the SBA loan to close our transaction, but SBA is just the proceeds to get the deal to the close of the table. It's not what I do. I look at myself and I say I'm different. I'm not an SBA lender. That's not my role. My role is to help facilitate the buyers or the searchers the people that come to me to help them fulfill what it is that they want and desire, and that's to get the deal to the place to take. You know, it's interesting. It's both sad and true that he even had to do that. He, he was able to establish his credibility before any preconceived internal biases of those employees okay. kicked in. And like I said, it's both sad and true that, you know, sometimes that's needed. Um, you that's know. really real, right? And that's reality, right? Like you said, sad and true, but it, but perception is people's reality. And I've learned that as I've grown, right? Because um, people will tell me things and I'll say, oh, well, that's not correct. It doesn't matter if I tell them it's not correct. If that's their perception, that's their reality. Story is what makes up a good show. So let's yeah. give so, us another one. This uh, searcher comes to me. Um, this was here at First Bank of the Lake a couple of years ago. Um, he's on Twitter. He's, he's very noticeable. Great, great guy. But um, he had really good experience. He called me up and he said, but I don't even know how to issue an LOI. I know we're going to talk about an LOI, but do you have a blank copy for me so I can submit one? I mean, literally, 
um, and he was buying a, a, um, a construction-related business. That's all I'll say. Um, and we started from, and it was a proprietary search, right? So he got the financials from the seller and said, "Okay, let's dive into the financials." I mean, so you, I mean, you want to talk literally from day one to the closing table. Um, and he sent me a, a text message the other night and said, um, you know, he's, he's had now the business just over a couple of years, but he's grown it tremendously. EBITDA is, is way up. He's been super successful, had all the skill sets because he was buying a business in the sector that he was working in. He was very familiar with it. That's how it became a proprietary um, he found out the seller was thinking about retiring and approached him. And that's how he got the deal. But literally, I I worked with him from, okay, let's look at the financials, to helping him with the LOI, to getting it to the end, just all as, aspects of the transaction. And so, yeah, it's it's. I just leave it up to the to the individuals as to when they want to contact me. Then I have some people that contact me post. Post LOI, they're ready to rock and roll. Um, I just got a transaction, it's in credit now. Synergistic acquisition, post LOI, one, two, three, super quick. Two weeks later, the deal is in, in underwriting, getting ready to go to credit. So, you know, it just depends upon the individual. I can see if you're a search funder and you're fairly new, one of the most complex things there is is valuations, right? Figuring out what a company should be. Yeah. Like, you know, should be bought for and what would the SBA approve? Because if your valuation is too high, the SBA is going to have you renegotiate a correction, <laughs> right? Uh, um, or just tell you no. <laughs> let, let, let me share a, a little bit of tidbit of information. I have another story. Awesome. <laughs> so this searcher um, uh, is in the Texas area. He's a military guy. Wharton MBA, just a, a great, great guy. And he comes to me and he says, Bruce, I'm looking at a business and, you know, the cash flow and what the seller wants isn't really meshing. And I said, okay. He says, but you happen to know the investment banker who's bringing the deal to market. So I said, all right, who is it? He told me, I said, yeah, I, I know him very well. He said, I, I think it would be appropriate if you had a conversation with him. I said, I already know the deal because the investment banker came to me before we put it on the market to get my opinion. So the investment banker and the seller go through various rounds of interviews on who they're going to sell the business to. They end up narrowing it down to three people. Um, Two of the three were looking for SBA financing to, to get the deal to the closing table. The third person was a synergistic acquirer who was not going to use SBA. He had a relationship with a commercial bank. He had a business. He could get a commercial loan to do the transaction. P.S. They, they move forward. They, they decide that they don't want to move forward with the synergistic acquirer, um, that they're going to choose between Buyer A and Buyer B. Buyer A and Buyer B were both extremely well qualified. I was having conversations with both. But he said to me, listen, Buyer A is who we really want to go with over Buyer B. But Buyer A, his price is $400,000 less than Buyer B. 
is there any way he could come up talking to your point in valuation? The business was just sub 880, okay, in EBITDA. They wanted 5.2 million for the business, right? So, you know, you, you go, mm, okay, 7 million, million times five is 5 million. This is eight sub 80 and they want 5.2. And I said five to him, FX. yeah. And in the space, I said, I don't know if it's going to appraise up, right? So I've gone through the training through NAPFA for the certification for business valuations. I am not a certified for liability purposes from the bank's perspective. I'll leave it at that. But I said to him, he asked me because I have a relationship with the investment banker. He said, what do you think, Bruce? What do you think? And I said, I don't think it's going to value up, but let's get a third party evaluator to do it and we'll see what happens. Anyway, we choose buyer A. My client comes to me. They go ahead. They agree to offer the $5.2 million. Valuation comes in at $4,760,000. Now, the SBA does allow a 10% differential in price. So if somebody was buying a business for five, three fifty, and that valuation came in at five, you are okay. The only thing you have to do is you have to write a letter as the buyer to the SBA explaining to them why you are willing to spend, in this case, $350,000 more. It could be for the opportunity. It could be for you think you're going to scale it. You think you're going to build it much better. Whatever the case may be, the SBA does allow that. And that's what we did in this case, right? But you kind of get a sense. I mean, it's, valuations are, are, we look at there's eight different factors, really the main factors. Like you'll look in a valuation book one and it will say, well, this is going to get between a four and five multiple. Well, why is it four versus why is it five? There's reasons, right? You know that. You, you're, you're well experienced in the space. But I can sit down with the searcher and go, okay, let's talk about the factors and see why we think it's a four versus why we think it's a five. I'll tell you a couple of other things. I'm a true believer in Warren Buffett and his saying, price is what you pay, value is what you get. I tweet it all the time. I quote it all the time. I work with it every time. If you're talking about two or $300,000 in valuation difference between a buyer and a seller and the opportunity cost of not getting that deal to the closing table, my feeling is doesn't matter. Because if you amortize $300,000 over 10 years, you're talking about $30,000 a year. If you can't take that business and grow it and make it your own and build it and scale it and all those things that go with buying, an SMB, then that $30,000 shouldn't even be at play. It's just doesn't even register. Do it, move on. It's it, You get into a lot of emotional aspects between a buyer and a seller. I've had buyers literally say to me, I'm not giving that guy $100,000 more. And I'm like, for $10,000 a year, you're going to pass on that opportunity. You've been searching for eight months. And for 10 grand a year, you're going to miss out on the opportunity doesn't make sense. I'll, I'll throw that back to you. Thoughts? You know, I, my thought is ego gets in the way a lot, right? Uh, a lot of people think that even, you know, I have my MBA. It's not from Wharton or Harvard or anything, but it's 
I've got one. And, you know, they think you, once you get one, you think, okay, I know this business thing. Now I've got this magical piece of paper. It says I do. And we're humans, right? A lot of people miss that, that concept. You got you to gotta remember, remember as you're going through these deals and processing things, are you allowing your ego to get in the way or your logic, right? Um, I think you should use a little bit of both. You got you to have the confidence to get, you know, to get the job done. But you really ought to base the thing on your logic. And, and a lot of people have a bad, like a bad problem with separating the two, right? That, you know, when somebody says, I won't pay another 100 grand for that, you know, for a business that I'm going to own for 30 years or 15 years, a lot of these guys are buying for the long term. Um, unless it's pushing it, you know, on day one, like your overvaluation anyway, or, you know, there's cases, I can get it where there's cases, but in most cases, it's, it's probably your ego, right? And a lot of times, you know, if the seller's asking for, for more money at the last second or something like that, a lot of times it's not the money he's after, right? It's a reluctance to sell because he doesn't know what to do next. It's uh, there's something he's got to, he's he found some flaw in your plan or something he doesn't believe in and he just doesn't want you to be the buyer and you need to, you know, it's not that it's, that's not the end of the road. It's an obstacle. You got to figure out, okay, how come, how come this comes up now? But uh, my response to that is, you know, you know, we, we can get into conversations about valuation. We can get into conversation. You know, I, I think that, and I tell searchers and buyers this all the time, is if, if we're having a conversation and it's a topic that I don't understand, that's going to be a Just because it, at some point, after all these years of doing it, you've seen it all, right? So, you know, the expression, oh, I wish I knew then what I know now. Well, you, you couldn't know that what you know now. You haven't lived it, right? So experience is a great teacher, going through all of these, seeing all these businesses. I have a saying, I've got a lot of saying. My favorite one is today, you're the best at what it is you do, but tomorrow you'll be even better. Um, and that's what happens with experience, right? You learn something new every day. Um, maybe that doesn't apply to a baseball player who's now 39 and, and older in his career, but, <laughs> but in our world and what it is that we do, yeah, today you're the best at what you need to do, but tomorrow you'll be even better, right? So it's it's giving that experience to these these buyers and searchers and look at that's what, what I do every day, you know, all day. On that topic, what's one thing you know now you wish you'd have known 10, 15 years ago? So absolutely um, being a specialist, understanding how to market that, brand it, and really facilitate the growth of it. You know, when I look at myself 10 or 15 years ago, I did all kinds of SBA learning. I would do whatever came my way. Today, I do one thing. So I look at it like you have the DO, and then you have the MD, and then you have the neurologist, right? And they're all sitting in the room. Well, who's the guy making the most? Everybody knows the answer to that question, right? So I think if I... And I share that with the folks at my bank that I'm a team lead and I've got several people that report to me. And I share that with them. I say, get ahead of the curve. It's the one thing that I wish I knew then that I know now is if you can specialize in something and you can become an expert at it, people will come to you. And, and that's the one thing. And I think that goes for the search funders too. There's a lot of guys, I just talked to somebody yesterday who, when I asked what they're looking for, and I was like, yeah, I don't know yet. I'm just going to market to a bunch of people and then see what sticks. And I was like, yeah, that works, but it's difficult, right? 
if you can figure out that you want, and I'm, I'm going through this now, I go through phases, right? I was evaluating coffee shops for the first two or three months because I thought I really wanted to be in them and learned that I don't. But uh, once you figure that out, you can actually put the word out there and say, I'm looking for X. It needs to look like Y and I want to buy it by Z. And if you, you know, really put that out there and you really, you know, market that, deals will come to you, you know, especially after you learn the industry, you specialize in it. Um, I mean, we did it the last year with marketing agencies and, uh, you know, we were doing a marketing agency roll up and, you know, we built a, a communication channel that enabled us to evaluate over 200 marketing agencies in less than 200 days. Um, and we take quite a few of them to the LOI stage and start due diligence. So, you know, and that's just because we knew exactly what we were looking for. We were able to articulate that. And then we were also able to simply articulate our value add, what happens when they work with us, right? right? And, uh, you know, I always, go, you know, goof around and tell these guys, these search funders and stuff, you are who Google says you are, you know, so, you, you know. Yeah, reputation is earned, right? And, yeah. and, and to, to that point, you know, I look at where I am today in, in, in my life cycle and, you know, you eventually, we all hope to get to that point where we're all, you know, have financial stability, right? That's that's the ultimate goal. And we can do the things that we want to do. And we can look in the mirror and say that we've grown a business or we've built a business and we've been successful, right? That's that that's the bet. And I, I think at this point in time when I when I look at it and I say to myself, the opportunities of the past seven or eight years now that I am an expert in this space and what it's allowed me to do. And not so much for me, but for the people that I work with, right? Because um, you and I talk, it's different when you get up in the morning and you don't have to go to work versus having to go to work, right? It, it's a little bit different mindset. And I, I strive to be better each and every day so I can help people accomplish what it is that, that they want to do. What they want to do There's a ton of, like we talked about, there's a ton of baby boomers exiting. And this next generation needs to come up and, and be able to facilitate those acquisitions and keep those businesses alive. And, you know, it's my passion. It's, it, it really is. And I think that um, I worked very hard to get to this point, going back to school and becoming a certified M&A advisor and getting the MBA, doing all those things to, to become an expert in this space. And I couldn't know now what you know back then because it just took that many years to be able to because when a, when, a, when a searcher or buyer comes to me and they say i've got a problem how do i handle it i have to know right i have to set myself apart from the person who just says oh yeah i'm an sba lender. like i said i do not look at myself as an sba lender i i just sba is the funding tool we get you know, that we use to get the deal to So on the last couple of shows I recorded, I purposely sent us down a rabbit hole and it was the funnest thing I did. The first, the uh, for you guys out there listening and listening land, the one of them was uh, asked the guy, what's the coolest thing he's working on? He's buying a million dollar car and turning it into a, uh, almost a million dollar car and turning it into a profit center for his business. And the next guy I asked, what's the craziest thing he ever uh, built, you know, in his company? And it's giant, rideable, unicorn, rocking horse things, like, because he does casting. So I'm going I'm to take us down a rabbit hole now. What's the craziest thing you've ever funded or helped, helped get funded as an acquisition that you just like, like, the story yeah, time? So, man. Yeah, so 
Um, interesting story, this young lady um, is in New York. She lives in a very high rise apartment and she lost her job. And she was talking with the neighbor and the neighbor said to her, well, you know, can I, you know, impose upon you to walk Rocky twice a day? She said, it's hard for me to get back from where I am in my job to get to the dog. So if I pay you 10 or $15 and $25 a day, can you, here's my key, come in, pick up Rocky, take him down for a walk, bring him back up, spend 10 minutes with him, whatever the case may be, and then do it, you know, 10 o'clock and 4 o'clock. So she says, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So she does it. And she does it for a week or so, and one of the neighbors sees her and says, oh, is that your dog? Oh, no, 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 it's, it's my neighbor's dog. I'm, I'm dog sitting or dog walking. She says, you know, I've got a friend who has been looking for somebody to do that. Would you mind speaking with her? So the young woman says, yeah, I'll be more than happy to, to speak with her. So she speaks with the woman, and lo and behold, she gets her second client. Second client becomes third, becomes fourth, becomes 10, becomes 20. I can't do this anymore. I, I, I'm making a lot of money, but there's only one of me. Oh, let me go get fine little Sally Sue, who's in high school. Can you help me? After school, at least one time, start helping. This woman grew the business, and she grew it enough to where she sold it at over $5.5 million for a dog-walking business in New York City. That's cool. That's cool. And, you know, and it's, it just shows that uh, pretty much any unmet need is an opportunity for an entrepreneur to help out and, um, you know, I hate some people, you know, demonize the word capitalize, but to, to capitalize on an opportunity is just just means that you're able to to feed yourself and feed employees and and to to make something, you know, work. So uh, you know, it wasn't even something that she thought of, right? It was like somebody approaching her. When I I, I mentioned that I own my own business for 13 years, and it was somebody I was working in the banking industry, and somebody had made a comment to me these people really could use some consulting help bruce i i can't provide it to them do you know anybody who can and i said well what you know what can i do for them and well, who can i it's interesting because if you want to know what people think about you or what they say about you if they're referring you all you need to do is ask and i do it all the time like i'll say to people if you're going to refer me, what is it that you say about me? Because if I want a certain message delivered and they don't know, then how can they deliver it? Right. Right. So I ended up helping this person. They referred me to somebody else. And just like the woman with the dog walking business, boom, all of a sudden, I don't have time to go to work anymore because I'm too busy doing consulting work for everybody else. Fast forward 13 years later, you know, I got a great opportunity to um, kind of like a perfect storm, won't get into it, but I got a great opportunity to 
to jump back into the banking business. And what I realized was, as an entrepreneur, at least for me, I had built a very good me business. And what I also realized in doing what it is that I do is that you're not going to be able to sell and capitalize on a me business. And so I looked at it and I said, I've got a very nice business and I do well, but it's nothing that I can scale and it's nothing that I can grow because it's me. It's what's in between the two years. And so, like I said, I got a great opportunity. I don't regret that decision um, at all. I, I love the journey. I love where I've reached and where I'm going because I'm still in my mind going places and want to achieve my own goals and help more people and doing what it is that I want to do. But yeah, you know, you do that. And sometimes that opportunity is being able to listen and taking advantage of a need that's in the marketplace. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that that's the majority of entrepreneurs out there. A lot of the business you see, especially these businesses that are, you know, they're second and third generation, you know, I would bet more often than not, and, and I've seen this firsthand, you know, they didn't go to Harvard. The first guy that created the business didn't go to Wharton, didn't go to Harvard. They were out building, you know, they were they, they needed a widget or, you know, a gear or whatever you call it. They, they needed a widget. They figured out how to make it. Somebody else seen that they made it that really nicely and asked them to make them one. The next right. thing I know, they're turning out, you know, windows and trying to figure out how to send out invoices. So when these search funders go out and they start looking at these business things, like their books are horrible. Like, yeah, nobody ever went to, to none of their, uh, you know, none of their team have ever been to your school. None of right. them known, you know, have ever been taught what it's supposed to look like. Don't totally discredit that. Can can you fix it? Right. But yeah. uh, I, I call them accidental entrepreneurs and most of the people are like, you know. I would say my first business that I, uh, you know, not my first one, because I've been an entrepreneur since I was a kid. I, my first business I, I did out of pure frustration and anger. I tried to go work for my dad. He told me no. So I grabbed the push mower and pushed it five miles into town and started mowing lawns because he yeah. told me I wasn't old enough or tough enough to work for him. I was like, I'll show you, um, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, I had a job ever since uh, or a work, you know, had a business or a job or something. But uh you know, one of the bigger businesses that I had that did pretty well was, you know, um, you know, I was stationed somewhere, did a part time job. Next thing I know, like I, I did something for somebody. They paid me. They insisted upon paying me. Then they told their friends I knew how to do it. Like it was in the computer repair and networking type of space. And next thing I know, I'm I'm churning out, you know, so much work. I got a couple of friends of mine helping me do it. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. you know, that's and that's the way a lot of it happens. So, um not unheard of. Uh, the real trick is, is when they, when it comes time to exit, you have to do one of two things. You have to get people that know that and they're willing to take on that conversion themselves, which is rare. A lot of us guys, you know, especially me at my age, I just turned 50. I'm not looking to buy another job. I want something fairly well running and systems and processes and team members in place before I even look. But, uh, you know, there are buyers out there that are willing to be the operator for a while and to create that. And there's a huge value. Don't miss, don't pass it up. Uh, just because I don't want to don't mean don't want to do it doesn't mean somebody shouldn't because there's a huge oh, well, you know, searchers that I speak with they'll you know they'll create these websites right and it will say to you know buy a business and operate it and run it mm -hmm. and after a couple of years then they come and they have a change of what it is that they want to do so then they'll say well now I want to buy a business and I want to put a manager in place 
and I want to sit back. And I was speaking with the searcher this morning and that was his model. He said, you know, I've, I've, I've bought a couple of businesses. I've run them. I've worked hard, you know, they're cash flowing. And now I want to, you know, put somebody in place to kind of just monitor them and, and I'll be there, but I don't want to go in every day. Right. Cause life happens, right? People's kids get older. They've got to go to their soccer game. You know, they've got to be there to take them to school, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I've got a that, six and 11 year old. I want to be there when they want to go do stuff. Right? right. Exactly. You don't want to miss out on that. Right. And so, uh, and I was, that was me. I had my own business while my, my, my girls were growing up and it, it allowed me to um, be at the skating rink because my older daughter skated, um, be at the, the dance, you know, place because my, my other daughter danced. I mean, that, that's what you want to do. Small business ownership, you know, let's face it, that's one of the benefits of, of being a small business owner. So, so people's perspective change when they do it. And, and to your point about like the tax returns or the, the numbers and owners don't know, know what they have. You know, a lot of owners, um, you know, they have their accountants or they have their CPAs or they have their bookkeepers. They're generally not, the majority of them are not, you know, you started out as a master electrician. Now you've got an electrical company. You're not really watching over the books, right? Right. You just, well, you look in the bank account, there's more money in there than you spent. Great. Right. Um, that's why there's a whole cottage industry of, you know, exit planning professionals that will come in and say, okay, you want an exit in two or three years? Let's put your books in. Order. I did, I did that on a transaction um, last year where it was just such a motivating factor for the searcher who said the seller has already made the transition plan. He's got the managers really working. The books are in order. The Q V has come back really well. He, he has put this business in a position to sell it. Right. And it was very easy to get that transaction done because he did it. Oh yeah. Right. So, you know, we talk about process and what it is that we do and how we do it and how we do it a little bit different. Same thing could be said for the seller on that side. You want to sell your business. You want to have an exit. It's like when you sell your home, throw a good coat of paint on it, clean up the lawn, make it look appealing, right? That's what they do. You, you know, clean out all the old junky furniture, make the space look nice, make it look inviting, and you're going to sell it, right? It's the same principle whether you apply that to a, a house or a business in my mind, right? Um, so, and, and for me, I think that, you know, in what I do here at First Bank of the Lake and, and how I work with buyers and searchers is, is it makes it easy when they come to me and they've got a structure that they know is working. I've got another one of my sayings, congratulations, you've structured a transaction that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so now you've got to go back. As a matter of fact, if you look on Twitter, and I know you and I are connected, you'll see me comment on that on the tweet that I made this morning. That's what happens. You ultimately got the deal to the closing table because it's then going back and saying when you have a willing buyer, a willing seller, and a willing lender, you can make a deal work. And that's how you get a deal to the closing table. 
right? When you've got all parties at the table willing to work together versus a buyer going back going, no, I'm not going to give you $100,000 more. Or a seller going, no, I'm not going to sell it to you for $100,000 less. I'm going to share another quick story with you. I got on a call with a seller three weeks ago on a business that we first approved a year and a half ago. So a year and a half ago, we approved this business. The deal did not get to the closing table. I won't share why. I'll just say. Fast forward six months later, another buyer comes along. We approve the deal. The deal does not get to the closing table. So the deal is still on the market. The broker has been terrific about referring business. He knows we understand it. It's a little bit of a complicated business. So finally, the broker and I decided, let's have a conversation with the seller. Let's talk with him and find out what's the issue. He had an offer for a prospect that I'm working with. It wasn't the price that he wanted. And I got on the phone with the seller on. And I said to him, look it, can you tell me why you're selling the business? Talk to me. I just, you've got a great business. I maybe not, I maybe don't understand why you're selling it. Can you just the emotional part of why you're selling it? So he goes on to talk about his wife and his family situation, really what his goals and desires are, and that the money at the end doesn't mean as much to him. And I said to him, I don't like to disagree with you. However, I've, there's an offer on the table. It's $200,000 less than your asking price. And you've said no. So the purpose of my call with you is, I hear you saying one thing, but in reality, it is meaningful because you're not selling the business and you've waited a year and a half to have, make it happen. So can you shed some further light on it for me? Because after you pay the broker and after you pay the taxes, what's the net effect of a couple hundred thousand dollars? You know, you've been there, done that. It's not a lot of money. So I said to him, and you're making a million and a half dollars each year. So I can't, I just drilled down to the emotion the next day, I get a call from the buyer. They accepted my offer. And I, and I think it was just sitting down with the – and we were doing a face-to-face, one-on-one, just kind of like you and I are doing now, although it wasn't a podcast. But it was real, right? Mm-hmm. It was real conversation about the why. And at the end of the day, maybe it was an ego thing to your point that you made before, but I just got him to realize – there's an opportunity cost if you wait another six months. That two hundred thousand dollars is not going to be as much as the two hundred thousand dollars today. It just it just didn't make sense to me. And and now we're potentially. It's a big transaction. I mean, it's a six point three million dollar deal. So it's not like a you know a million dollar transaction. It's a good sized transaction with a good amount of EBITDA, uh, a, a terrific business that this guy has built. But that's the process: getting the deal to the closing table. You know, and it, it happens a lot, actually. Uh, a lot of times people don't even understand why they throw a monkey wrench in the end. And, and it has to do a lot of things. They don't 
they're reluctant to sell because they don't know what they're going to do next. They, you know, like you mentioned, it was, you know, there's wife and other stuff going on. A lot of times there's outside influences that make you want to sell, but you don't really want to. Um, I was looking at a, at a company and I asked him what the guy is selling. He's like, well, my wife got transferred, you know, 90 miles over and she wants to buy a, a house close to there. And I was like, okay, what do you want? And he goes, you know, I kind of want to buy a house in the middle and keep my business. Right. I don't want to like, I'm not driving 90 miles, but I'll drive 45 miles a day if that's what it takes to run it. Yeah. Right. But yeah. she doesn't want to do that. And I was like, okay, it sounds like you need to have another conversation with your wife before we do this. Cause you're going to sell this business and really reluctant be really, really wish you hadn't, you know, a lot of people think well, that he's not going to get to the closing table or he's going to realize right before the closing that, and I had a deal that just exactly happened. It was a transaction for a guy who was buying a business. The wife knew the family. It was, I want to move back to the Washington, Delaware area. Um, that's where my wife's family are. They found out this business was for sale. The husband went in. We approved the deal. The deal is in closing. And I'm asking, well, where's the purchase agreement? Where's the purchase agreement? We're, well, we're having, there's some sticking points. What sticking points? And then all of a sudden I get a call a week later, the deal's not happening. Why? Seller is backed up, right? And you've got deal costs at that point that are real, right? You've got Q of E, you've got attorney, the seller's got the attorney, you've got diligence, you've got, they moved. Right, we're two weeks away from closing. They went, they rented them. I mean, there's real life and real money when those deals break up. Mm -hmm. When a seller realizes, I have, I literally have, unfortunately, a dozen of those stories, a dozen of those stories where you have deals in closing and then right two weeks before they break up. And I, it's a conversation that I have with all my buyers and searchers. Let's talk about why the seller is selling. What does he know that you don't know, right? I want to know the reason. I don't want to hear that the guy is 42 and he's tired of making a million dollars. That's <laughs> a red flag for me, right? Like, I don't know if you're tired of making a million. I don't know anybody that's 42 tired of making a million dollars. I just don't. Um, Problem is what happens on those deals is they're 42. They may be tired of the business and they realize they're clearing, you know, a million dollars a year. They think, well, I'm selling this company for, you know, three and a half X, you know, EBITDA or whatever. So I'm getting four or five million dollars off this thing, you know, but that it clicks in it in four years. If they if they continue to pay themselves the way they're capable of paying themselves now, it's four years. That money's gone. And then what? Right. Yeah. And yeah. some of them click in the realization that, you know, there's a little bit of luck in this game. So just because you created a million dollar EBITDA business before doesn't mean the next one you're going to create is that right. Yeah. There's yeah. a little bit of product market fit luck type of thing to where the next, you might go through three business ideas in 10 years trying to get back up to a million dollars in EBITDA, right? A team that wins the Stanley Cup doesn't mean they're going to win it the next year. A team that wins the, you know, the World Series is not going to make it the next year, right? It's, it's hard right. to repeat, right? Um, yeah. I've seen it, you know, I've got stories of that where people have, you know, expanded. They had one operation, they expanded. It didn't work out well, you know lost the bit you know it's just that's just everyday occurrence right i mean mm -hmm. it's just 
you think about all the businesses in the United States and what's happening in trade and commerce, and those things are just, yeah, they're happening for sure. They're real. Well, Bruce, we're getting to the top of the hour, man. Time flies when we're having fun. So there's a couple things I do want to make sure we, we get. How do people reach out and, and get a hold of you? I keep turning your name on and off because of the camera angle. You're, it's on your face. So, um, But how do people, how, how do people uh, reach out to you if they want to learn more about helping you, them getting your help to get their deal to the closing table? So, there, so there's two ways. Um, my email is um, bmarks, obviously at fblake.com, bmarks at fblake.com, and always available by cell. Um, I've had this number for, like all of us, you know, 25, 30 years, uh, 954-646-5820, 954-646-5820. So either way, is accessible. I'll make sure those in the show notes for you guys listening. And uh, if you're listening to the podcast, don't, uh, it'll be in the show notes when, when you pull over and you're safe in a safe location, take a look. And those for you guys watching, it'll be in the show notes. So, uh, yeah. So the last, the last thing I always ask, what can myself or my audience do to, to help you? I mean, um, you know, I'm thrilled that I can say it's, it, it's not, I'm not looking for help. Right. So um, I'm looking to provide help. Um, I, 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 at this point in my career, Ron, I, I literally say the more people that know me and know what it is that I do, then the more people that I can help, right? Um, obviously, it's, it's a win-win if we close a loan and the bank, you know, makes a loan. That's obviously a win. It's a win for, um, you know, the people that are listening here. It's a win for the people that are tuning into your podcast and all the people that, that you provide help for. So not really what they can do for me, but, but more so what I can do for them in all honesty. All right. So I'll throw this out there. So if you are, if you're graduating in college, you've done the ETA, the Entrepreneurial Through Acquisition Program, you have a friend, a family member, a son or a daughter that's in that program, and you, you think they're about, thinking about buying a business, um, Send them to this podcast, have them watch it, have them listen to Bruce here, and then have them contact him and see if he can help them move their game forward. So I think that would be a, a good ask out there. And then on my side, if you're out there, you're listening to this, make sure you understand that if you're a mergers and acquisitions guy, we have a bi-monthly uh, meetup where we hang out, help each other move our games forward. Uh, Bruce, you're invited to join us on this. It's usually uh, advertised on uh, the search funders com website which i'm not associated with in any shape or fashion i just like their stuff and then on linkedin and and some other stuff there's a meetup group that'll be in the show notes so you can join up and uh and attend those we just it's kind of a business networking thing we we meet up we chat we try to help each other move our game their games forward and then uh we have a slack group also and if you want to reach out and ask questions of uh different people uh we just had uh I haven't seen him respond to anybody, but we just had the CEO of Flippa join the Slack group a couple of days ago. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people on there that are very high level advisors that if you got a question, you're in the space, uh, join our Slack group and you can ask questions and people will get to them and answer them as they can. Um, and that's in the show notes also. But I want to thank you, Bruce, for being on the show. Uh, is there any last, like, if, if somebody can think one takeaway from you, one idea or one thing they wanted to, you you wanted them to remember you by what would be that idea? Ah, oh, that's a good one. Um, that if your dream is to own a small to medium sized business, that 
it's possible, even if you don't have a lot of money, that there are investor groups that can help along with whatever money you have. And if a well-structured deal comes along and you have a willing buyer and a willing seller and a willing lender, you can make the deal work. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to make dreams come true then. That's awesome. So that's a great way to end the show. Thank you for listening today. And that's the show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T i e p m dot com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind.